0: John chapter 13. If you'll grab your Bibles and turn with me to John 13. If you you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some underneath the the chairs there, and that's on page 900. Page 900. John chapter 13. I want to invite you to go on a journey with me this morning um, as we jump into the text. And we're going to jump in here pretty quick here. Um, This is a significant Um, shift in the Gospel of John what we're going to be looking at today in John chapter 13. So just imagine you're one of the disciples. You've been with Jesus for three, three years or so. Just reflect on what you've seen. Um, In in the Gospel of John we have seven signs recorded here that Jesus did. now we know he did many other things but just to name a few you're there when Jesus turns The water into wine. You're there with him when he tells the official son, "Hey, go, your son will be healed." You're there with him when he's at the pool, and there's all kind of invalids there, blind, sick, and there's there's one that had been there for thirty-eight years, and Jesus heals them. You're there when when the multitudes are there, five thousand to be specific and Jesus feeds them. You're there when the man who was born blind, never seen, and Jesus grants him sight. You're even there when Lazarus, who was dead, and Jesus raised him. Put yourself in their shoes. Jesus had done all of these signs and many more. And it says in the Gospel of John that these signs are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. The purpose of these signs, everything that Jesus was doing, was to show who He truly was so that the people would believe that He was the Son of God. Sadly, in John 12, It says this in John 12, verse 37. John writes, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. You see, Jesus came first of all for his own, for the Jews. He was a Jew. But as we find out here in John chapter 12, the majority of the Jews had rejected Him. They had not believed in Him. In fact, they were going to be the many that sent Him to the cross. The Pharisees. Crucify Him! Crucify Him! They did not believe. And so what we have here in John chapter 13, Jesus had, had completed his, his public ministry and now He turns privately to His own, to the disciples. You see, what we're going to find out here, if you'll look with me here in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, John 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world, To the Father. When we pick up here in John 13, the cross is one day away. Now just think here with me for a second. Twelve chapters of John were spent on three or so years of the life of Christ. And now, John, the author, in writing this, hits slow mo. On the remote. And you know what we're going to see for the rest of John? Pretty much John 13 all the way through John 20 happens within 24 hours. We're going to get seven chapters here. 24 hours worth. And John's hitting slow mo and he's telling us hey, this is what it's all about. It's almost as if he has flown through the life of Christ. And all the Gospels do this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they spend about half on the life of Christ and then half on 24 hours or so of His death. Which highlights, man, His death, His resurrection was essential. It was crucial. So what's Jesus doing? His public ministry is over. And now He's gathered the twelve around Him. And He is going to prepare them for what is about to happen one day from now. Think about it. Within these 24 hours to come, Jesus is going to be arrested. His very own disciples, Peter. You know what Peter's going to do in the next 24 hours? Three times he's going to deny Him. No, I don't know Him. And, and we're going to, He was in this very conversation that we're about to read through right here. No, I don't know this guy. And Jesus is going to be crucified. This is going to be traumatic for the disciples. And obviously, they're not going to get it until he raises from the dead. So Jesus, and this has been called the farewell discourse. It's basically, if you were with Jesus the night before his death, this is what he wanted them to know. Now, you may be asking, hey, John, why do I I need to listen to anything you have to say the rest of the day? Well, here's why. This is what Jesus said to his disciples right before he died. And he thought it was that essential that they get this. And so I believe as a church, it is essential that the truth delivered here, we embrace, we grasp today. So as we reflect through the Gospel of John, John records seven signs. And what he usually does is he tells us about these signs. So for instance, when Jesus feeds the 5,000... He feeds them, and then we go into a long discourse about the bread of life. And it's Jesus telling them, hey, I've just given you physical bread, but hey, I want you to know I am the bread of life. You eat from my body, and you drink, and you will have life. So we have a discourse on that. For instance, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, we're going to have a long discourse that's teaching us that not only is Jesus the bread of life, he is the resurrection and the life. So if you want resurrection, you want life, it is found in Christ. Now, as we come to John 13, the event is not till John 20, the crucifixion. And so, whereas so far you've had the sign, he'll feed the 5,000 and then he'll teach on it. Now what's going to happen is Jesus is going to teach on it and then it's going to happen. So what we have here is Jesus is unpacking the event before the event actually takes place. So look here with me in John 13 as we read through this. John 13, I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? I'm going to share with you three truths today that Jesus was teaching the disciples. And the first one is this. He's teaching them that we must embrace the enduring love of the Savior. Embrace the enduring love of the Savior. Now, as we look at this this truth here, I'm going to kind of walk through the first verse here because this first verse is loaded and, and lays the groundwork for the rest of these 17 verses here. So, John sets the stage and he says, Now, this was before the feast of the Passover. Now, if we would have just read through all of the Gospel of John, one thing we would have gathered was this John has been setting the stage and building up this theme. Of the Passover. He's been developing it. Now, just reflect with me. You probably learned about the Passover um, in the Old Testament. Maybe you haven't heard about it before. So, just as a refresher here in the Old Testament, Israel found themselves enslaved in Egypt. The Pharaoh was a taskmaster who was driving them. They were enslaved. They wanted to get out. So, what does God do? God raises up Moses. Moses meets God at the burning bush, and God tells Moses, hey Moses, you're going to go to these people, and you're going to bring them out, and you're going to take them to the promised land. So Moses goes down there, and he goes to the Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And what's the Pharaoh say? He says, no, ten times. And so what does God send? He sends plague after plague. Ten plagues. The tenth plague is the plague of the firstborn. This is where the Passover comes in. God told Pharaoh, if you do not let my people go, the plague of the firstborn, every firstborn son is going to be killed. Now, after God delivering this and telling Moses to tell Pharaoh, God tells Moses this. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I want you to go back and I want you to tell your people that they need to, they need to sacrifice a lamb. They need to take some of the blood from the lamb and they need to cover the doorpost. And what I'm going to do is when I come, I am, if the blood has been shed over the doorpost, I'm going to pass over and your son will be protected. Now, after giving them instructions, this is what Moses writes here in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. He says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. When we come to John 13, this is what they were doing. They were celebrating the Passover feast. Now, as we reflect on Jesus... It's not too hard to see here what John was doing. He says, Tanner shared with us a few few weeks back, Jesus earlier in John 5 says, Hey, all the scriptures testify about me. Moses even wrote about me. We can see clearly in the Passover here, as a lamb, it had to be perfect, without blemish, was sacrificed, and as blood was shed over the door, this was just a picture of a greater Passover lamb that was to come and who would make provision for sin. You see, here's what John is doing. John is wanting us to see that the foot washing here is in anticipation of the greater Passover lamb who is about within 24 hours to be slain and whose blood is about to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. In John one twenty nine, John writes, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is presented here. As the Passover lamb. So, as as we begin this and as we talk about foot washing, yeah, this is about Jesus washing their feet. But John is crucial and critical to set the stage within the context of the Passover here. And we know that Jesus was well aware of this as well. So, we go back to verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew, that his hour had come. This word hour is also essential through the Gospel of John. I've given you a few verses here to reflect on with me. In John 2.4, look at what it says here. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In John 7.30, So they were seeking to rest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. In John 8.20, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But we come to John 12, and you know what we find? We find that it says this in John 12, 23, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's repeated again in John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this very purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus knew that within 24 hours, He was about to be arrested, He was going to be crucified on a cross, and He was going to bear the weight of millions of sins. He knew. This was why he came to live. Now, I don't know your background. Maybe maybe you have a church background. Maybe you're just exploring Christianity for the first time. Man, here's a truth I want you to grasp. The life of Christ was no accident. It was the purpose and the plan of God to send Jesus to die on the cross. This is what he came to live for. And so he knew... My hour is coming. He knew he was about to be crucified. He knew what he was about to face. And so in light of that, what does verse 1 continue to say here? So we've got the Feast of the Passover. It says, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, notice what he says here, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus did not shy away from what he was about to face. What we see here in the foot washing which is anticipating the cross is the great, enduring love of the Savior. Jesus is about to take the position of a slave to wash their feet. But the ultimate humility and expression of love is when Jesus is stripped and beaten, and crucified for you and me. The foot washing would have been shocking to the disciples. We're about to give that to a second. It would have shocked them. Jesus, the King of Kings, their Master, their Lord, is going to wash their feet. But even more shocking than that was that Jesus would die the hideous and shameful death of the crucifixion, the death of the damned. This is an expression of Jesus' love. And what it does is it elevates love as the supreme driving force behind his mission, behind his death. Let me ask you a question today. Have you experienced the intense love of the Savior? John 15, 13. If you'll just flip one page over with me. In John 15, 13, Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. We talk about love. I'm married, I love my wife. I desire to love her till the day I die. She knows that, I express that often. But my love for her pales in comparison to the love that Christ has for me. Now, Christ is the example. That's what I strive for, but this is the his is the ultimate love. And th- notice what, J- what John writes here. Jesus loved his own. Which means, yeah, we can talk about God's love for the world, but what is highlighted here is Jesus'. Is Love for those that were his own, specifically the 12 disciples here, his own. He was going to love them to the end. And what he's about to express here in the foot washing is one final proof of his love for them. Jesus' love is a covenantal love. Jesus' love is an unconditional love. Hey, listen to this. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore. You can't. You, by being here today, does not make God love you more. On the flip side, listen to this. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. That's unconditional love. It's not based on my condition of coming to church, of reading my Bible, or praying. It is unconditional. Have you embraced that? Have you come to know what we sang earlier? No love is higher. No love is deeper. No love is wider. It's a transforming love. I love this song here. Um, The Love of God by Frederick Lehman, written in 1917, says this, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Do you know this love? Have you experienced this love? This is Jesus' love for His own. But you know what we also see here? We also see Jesus' love for His enemies. Look back here with me in John 13. It says in verse 2, during the supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Why does John... Now, this is John letting us know here. John, the author, is giving us a little side note. Hey, by the way, guys, hey, before Jesus does this, Judas, it had already been put in his heart to betray Jesus. Now, but you may be thinking here, hey, well then, man, was Judas not responsible here? Yeah, obviously we see... Man, Satan putting this into his heart. But, man, I would just encourage you to reflect on this. A heart incited by by Satan actually wills what the devil wills. A heart incited by Satan actually wills what the devil wills. So, yeah, we could say, man, the devil put it in in his heart, but his will was there right along with Satan. What is John doing? John is highlighting, yeah, we're about to see the Pharisees send him to the cross. We're about to see the Romans crucify him. But beyond the bigger picture here, man, is the work of Satan that is working and that is moving. But why does John introduce this? Why does he give us this side note about Judas? Well, here's why. Judas was the opposite of everything we're about to read. We just read here that Jesus, we're about to talk about Jesus washing the disciples' feet and he's going to say, you are clean, but not every one of you. The disciples were clean, but Judas was not clean. And the disciples had need for their feet to be washed, but even a temporary cleansing would not have helped Judas. And you know what's also ironic? As Jesus is about to get down and wash their feet, Judas is the one whose hill was turned against Jesus. It says here in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God, was going back to God. We find some more things that Jesus knew. Not only did He know His hour had come, Jesus knew His power and His status. God had given all things into His hands, and He knew where He was going. And it's also assumed here that Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray Him. What might we have expected from Jesus? Did Jesus just burst out and go ahead and take it to Judas? That his wrath would be poured out against Judas? It's not what he does. You know what's assumed through this narrative? That Jesus also washes Judas' feet, knowing that he was about to betray him and send him to the cross. There is no greater demonstration of Jesus' love for his enemies than Jesus washing Judas's feet, what we see here is, is Jesus practicing what he had preached in Luke six twenty seven. Jesus had said this, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Let me ask you. This is just a pointed question, because this is presented as an example for us to follow. Not only do you embrace the love of the Savior, but how do you treat your enemies? Do you do good to them? Do you love them? Jesus is teaching them through his example. This is what followers of me, this is how they live. They love their enemies. They do good to them. And so we have, we have here setting the stage of the foot washing, the love of the Savior. And, and then it's described here what he does. So so after, after this introduction, it says Jesus rose from the supper. It says here in verse 4 that he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, and he tied it around his waist. What John is describing here is Jesus taking on the form of a, of a servant, really that of a slave. You see, foot washing back in the day, just reflect on it. They would have worn sandals. It would have been hot. It would have been dusty. So if you would have arrived at someone's house, the owner of the house would have arra- would have arranged for a servant for someone to wash the feet. This was usually done not during the meal, but when you arrived at their house. And this was the foot washing here. It was demeaned to be so low that, that Jews wouldn't even do it. This was... This position of foot washing was given to a Gentile, to a slave. A Gentile slave, not even a Jewish slave. It was given to the position of a Gentile slave. Someone that would have been looked down not only by Jews, but also by Gentiles. This is what Jesus becomes. He takes that position and he washes their feet one by one. And so this is where we pick up here in verse 6. In verse 6, as he's washing their feet, he comes to Simon Peter. We know Simon, through the Gospels, was an outspoken one, very bold. What does he say here? Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter's like, no, this isn't happening. You're not washing my feet. I mean, surely they would have been shocked. This was the master, the rabbi, the teacher. He was the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And now, I mean, I'm sure they were pretty embarrassed too that that they hadn't washed his feet. And so, no, Lord, no. You're you're not going to wash my feet. And what Jesus responds here, you need to listen up here, this is astounding. What Jesus says here in verse 7, Jesus said to him, what I'm doing... You do not now understand, but afterward you will. This is alerting us that they're not going to get this until after the crucifixion, until the resurrection. I mean, we see this. Peter's about to deny him, right? He obviously didn't get it. But after the resurrection, he does get it. We can read about Peter and Acts. And him being a part of being sent to prison and jail for his faith in Christ and being killed, martyred for his faith in Christ. He eventually gets it, but not till later. And so we pick up the narrative in verse 8, and it says, Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. But Jesus said to him, Listen here, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What is Jesus saying? If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And this leads us to our second truth today. The second truth is this, that not only should we endure, we embrace the enduring love of the Savior, but we should be cleansed by the sacrifice of the Savior. You see, Peter here is only thinking about what is socially right. Hey, no, you shouldn't be washing my feet. I should be washing your feet. But here's the point. The point that Jesus says is, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. The point is this, unless the Lamb of God has taken away your sin, has washed you, you can have no part with Him. We see here, through Jesus' statements, there's a lot more going on here than physical foot washing. He's not just giving them an example. His foot washing is a picture of the cross. It is a picture of spiritual cleansing of sins that they so desperately needed. What does it mean here? You will have no part with me. Jesus says, you will not belong to me. You will not be mine. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you want to be a part of Christ? do you want a share with Him? Well, then you must also be washed. You must also be washed. This shouldn't surprise us as we reflect on some verses here. Hebrews 9.22 And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His Blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. You guys see what I'm holding here? These are some Crocs flip-flops. My favorite pair... Of my, of my daughter Ava. Now, when our kids go swimming in the morning, Ava takes swimming lessons, usually they'll come back in the afternoon and Lee will, will give them an early bath before nap time. But then you still got the rest of the day, right? So after nap time they get up and maybe, maybe they go out to the park or wherever and the flip-flops are on. Now if you've got kids I'm sure you have experienced what I'm about to share with you. When we come for bedtime at night, if they've had a bath already, they're they're not going to get another bath. But those feet are definitely getting cleaned. Now, I have seen the feet of my kids, and sometimes they come in and they are so dirty that they are almost black. Can I get a witness? Anybody experience this? All right, Sam back there, Mike, I see you, Tanner. You know what you're talking about. The feet are filthy. They've been playing at the park, whatever. They don't care about it. They're filthy, so we take them to the bath, and their feet have to get scrubbed down before they get in the bed. You want to talk about filth? We're talking about physical foot washing here as a picture of the filth of sin that is in our lives. I want you just to reflect for a second. As you think about foot washing, man, it's one of the most unappealing parts of the body. The feet smell, they get dirty. The filth of your sin does not even compare to the filth of our feet. You may be saying, John, man, that's depressing. Man, I don't want to hear about sin. I want to hear about, let's go back to the love, the enduring love. Well, here's the point. Why talk about sin? Here's why. Because the love of God, the love of Christ, is only magnified in light of the greatness of our sin. Because here's the deal. Jesus knows your sin, and he has loved you to the end. It is love that has driven Him to the cross. So the greater you see your filth, Jesus says, you can never be too dirty that my washing through the cross cannot clean. Have your sins been washed clean? This last verse in Acts 3.19 says that you should repent and turn that your sins may be blotted out. If you're finding today that you have not been forgiven of your sin, what do you do? You believe in what Jesus has done on the cross and that His blood was shed for your sin, and you repent and you turn. You do that now. You call upon Him. You confess your sin. You believe and you turn. And you will be washed white As snow this is the first aspect of the foot washing but there's also another aspect as we look here what is Peter's response in verse 9 Peter responds and he says Lord not my feet um, not only my feet but my hands and my head also I mean here's what Peter gets Peter gets I want to be with Jesus because Jesus has said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Peter gets this. He wants to be with Jesus. And so Peter says, hey, man, I'll, I'll take a whole bath. Clean me. Hands, head, feet, whatever. Let's take it. I'll jump head in. And Jesus says, well, that's, look what Jesus responds here in verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are Clean. Presumably here, the disciples were already clean because of their faith in what Jesus was going to do in the cross. Their faith made them clean. But this is the second aspect and I believe we've got it up here. The first part is symbolizing that the once for all act and cleansing that one's re- one receives through initial faith and repentance. This is never repeated. That's the first aspect. But this last aspect in these two verses here is that the foot washing symbolizes the daily need for confession of sin as one battles sin in the flesh. If you've been washed, if you've been forgiven of your sin, here's what you need today. You need your feet washed. And what, what, what Jesus gives is an analogy from life. I mean, it's what I just shared with my daughter Ava. If she's had a bath, they would be... It, would, it wouldn't make sense to give her a whole bath if only her feet are clean, or only her feet are dirty. So at the end of the night, we'll just wash her feet. It's the same with you guys. If you place faith in Christ, you've been forgiven of your sin. There's no You've been forgiven. All of your sin is forgiven. But we all struggle daily in the battle with our flesh and with sin. So what do we need? We need continual confession. And forgiveness. This is the message of, of 1 John, the same author of the Gospel of John. Look at a few verses here. In 1 John 5.13, this is the purpose of 1 John. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. This is the purpose. John is writing to believers, to give them assurance. And in writing that, he says, 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's telling believers to confess sin and be cleansed. This is a practice that we all should pursue. And, and in our community groups, this is one of the things that we foster. As we split up at the end of the night in our community groups each week, is we, we try to foster confession of sin and finding forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So we see that here. Um, are you in need of washing from ongoing sin in your life today. Believe in the finished work of Christ, confess your sin, and you will be cleansed. In this finishing up the last kind of few verses of point two here, in verse 10 here, the variant of it, Jesus says, You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. Judas was not clean. Why is this highlighted here? Well, obviously it shows the unfathomable love of God, of Christ, and His forbearance. But it's also this. You need to listen here. It shows us that no right, even if performed by Jesus, ensures spiritual cleansing. Do you see that? Judas had his feet washed, but he wasn't clean. Physically, his feet were washed. His heart was not clean. I know in the area here that this is, for the most part, most people here are Catholic. This is the Catholic um, predominant religion. I mean, a lot of friends, non-practicing Catholics, they're still... I just want you to hear this, and this isn't against Catholicism, but I want you to hear the message of what Jesus says here. Baptism does not cleanse you of your sin. It doesn't. You can be, Protestants, you can be baptized and still not be clean. Catholics, you can be baptized and still not be cleaned. A rite, like baptism or whatever, does not make you clean. Protestants and Catholics, both of you hear that. What makes you clean? It's the blood of Christ. It is believing in what he did on the cross. And it's believing that, repenting, confessing, trusting in that. Judas teaches us that. So, man, embrace the endearing love of the Savior. Secondly, man, be cleansed today. Third truth as we wrap up is this. Serve with love and humility, like the Savior, Jesus concludes in verses twelve through seventeen. Says when he had washed, he resumed his place, and he says in verse thirteen, "You call me teacher and Lord; you are right. If I then, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you also, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done." He he, he here's what he does. He gives an argu- argument from the greater to the lesser he says if i'm your lord if i'm your teacher and i am and i've washed your feet then nothing is too low for you to do so the point is this if we were to go back to luke in this same narrative of the passover you know what we would see the disciples arguing about they were arguing about hey who's the greatest in the Passover narrative, the Last Supper, in Luke, who is the greatest? And it, this is ironic that this is the same passage where Jesus is washing their feet. And this is what he says, you want to be the greatest? You become the least. You want to be, you want to be the greatest? You wash feet. You see, the rabbis would uh, of Jesus' day, they would have promoted humility, but they would have had limits on their humility. Jesus' humility and service had no limits. He went to the lowest of lows. Let me ask you this. Do you put limits on your service? Do you put limits on your humility? Where would you say, no, that's too low? I wouldn't do that. Jesus goes to the lowest. This is supremely seen in the cross. What we read earlier in Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he humbled himself by becoming a servant, by becoming a man, and was crucified, and God has exalted him. And so here's the truth for believers. In Galatians 5.13, which is our meta-memo this week, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is what we're to do. We're to serve one another. So you may be sitting here thinking, okay, Jesus set us an example. What are we supposed to do? Set up a foot washing ministry? Some denominations have actually elevated foot washing to a sacrament, to, a, to an ordinance, to a rite in the local church. I don't believe that's what Jesus is doing for a, for a few reasons. First of all, no other place in the New Testament is this, is this ever spoken of in that way. And so I would be cautious to elevate something to an ordinance, to a rite, to a sacrament, however you want to call that, that's never mentioned again in the New Testament. But not only that, it would be easy for us just to physically wash feet and to mask an unbroken heart and a haughty spirit. We go, oh, I washed feet today. You know what? Maybe even you do that with your service. Does your service mask an unbroken and haughty spirit that, that you could say well I've got my service in but you could still be unbroken in heart here's what Jesus is getting at he's not just getting at service he's getting at broken hearts of humility that really desire the best and the good of others is that your heart so how do you do this how do you follow the example of Christ In Redemption Hill Church. You wanna be a great member? You wanna be a great leader at Redemption Hill Church? Wash feet. That's what Jesus is saying. And you know what? He's speaking directly to me and Tanner here. And here's what he's telling us You should never require your people to do anything that you wouldn't willingly do yourself. So this is hitting me in the face. I'm not gonna ask you guys to do something that I'm. Jesus was the leader. And he set them with the example. You want to be a leader, Redemption Hill Church? Get good at serving, at washing feet, at taking the trash out. We want hearts of servants. It would be easy for us to have the same problem the disciples had. Hey, who's the greatest among us? Is Tanner the greatest? Is Josh the greatest? Is John the greatest? Serve. What about at home? Husbands. How do you follow the example of Christ? Is there anything you won't do in the home? How how low will will your humility take you? Will you wash dishes? Will you do, in my house, you know what the thing that nobody wants to do is? You're going to say it's either cleaning the toilets or getting the scum out of the tub, right? I don't know, maybe for you guys, whatever it is. And you fight about that. We should have eager hearts to serve. Man, give me the lowliest thing. Give me the hardest task. That's what Jesus is setting us an example. College students, how do you serve with your roommate? With an unbelieving roommate? With your classmates? What does it look like for you to pursue humility and serve? Children, what does it look like for you in the home? To serve like Christ, with glad hearts. He has given us an example to follow. What about the workplace? You may be in a position of authority in the workplace. Do you serve? Or do you just lord your authority over others? Do you set the people following you an example of what it means to to serve in the workplace? And might that be a great demonstration and a display of the gospel? And then Medford. Medford. What might it look for us to serve Medford? Next week, we're going to have a week called Serve Medford, and that might be picking up trash at a local park. That might be going to the Boys and Girls Club and hanging out with kids all week. That might be coming to our community fun night next Friday, two Fridays, and and all you do is set up tables, and you you man a a jump, a blow-up game, so that kids don't get hurt. We want to be people who serve well, who love well. And you know how Jesus finished here? He said this, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Father, we thank you for your word. God, may we be hearers of your word. May we take up that last promise that we would be blessed if we do them. God, give us opportunities to serve well today, to love well. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.